This is a fourth hand production. Story in the news today. You believe in ghosts and the paranormal? Are they are they UFOs or are they like some crazy experimental, you know, governmental I don't know, know planes man. that they're building? Police in Española are catching more than just criminals. They're catching images of what they believe are ghosts. There's this weird animal-like creature that was shot, wolf-like creature that just stood out in some odd ways. And welcome to Strange Uncles, everybody. I'm Shane. I'm John. I'm the Rhinoceros. Oh, <laughs> is that a bad Sesame Street joke? I can never tell with you. Nah, Flight of the Concords, man. Oh, shit. There you go. Yeah. Anyway, um, hopefully you guys are good, right? I mean, it's been busy. John, you were camping. We were doing something. Josh, you bought a pool. Like, we got all kinds of weird shit going on. Yeah, I almost died in the desert. Not really, but uh, oh, that's it, was, cool. <laughs> it was a brutal, brutal trip. But it was fun. We made it back alive. Uh, didn't see anything because the trailhead that we wanted to go was closed. So we had to take this other trailhead that the lady recommended. But then it was like five miles to water and the beating oh, desert sun. And then it was even further away to anything worse seen. So, yeah, we just set up camp, uh, tended to our blisters and everything and heat stroke. And <laughs> that's so decided to wake up early the next morning and walk back. Where'd you guys go? We went to Grand Staircase Escalante. Mm. But oh, okay. One of the trailheads, the sand was so deep that the lady at the visitor center that we called was like, four by fours are getting stuck. And they just put out a thing like recommending no one try it. And if they do, it's at their own risk. And mm. like trucks were getting stuck out there. So we did Hurricane Wash and that fucking sucks. So if anybody ever decides to go hike down to the grand staircase escalante do not i repeat do not (laughs) take the hurricane wash trailhead it's miserable it sucks so much of it is in like the sand and like the front of my calf muscles are still like just so sore just trying to it's like when you walk through two feet of snow without snowshoes the same thing you know it's like you still have your dog right hopefully Came back safe and alive. Uh, dogs aren't allowed, so we didn't even bring her. Oh, good. So you didn't have uh, to eat sand the dogs. Is, yeah. Sand is worse. Sand is worse than snow. <laughs> For I sure. Can, I can imagine. Sure. That's funny. Well, we went to Zion's. That was kind of the same. They had some trailheads there that were like a little, mm, I don't know, a little sketchy, you know, but not too bad. Well, sorry, dude. I know you look forward to going out, but, you know, at the same time, glad you're alive. I mean, it's you it's know? good. The, the solitude's always nice. I got butt naked and ate a ready to uh Ready to eat meal, so that was good. TMI, awesome. Yeah, that sounds great. <laughs> so, well, I'm going to take a trip this weekend. A, so, you think oh, it's yeah, a good thing? Th- well, I was going to say, I think that's exactly enough information. <laughs> yeah, that's that's not that's probably true. <laughs> I'm sure there's some alcohol involved, but maybe not a lot. You know, I don't know. We'll see. But anyway, um, thank you for joining everybody. You know, like I said, we got kind of busy lives. Of course, we still have a COVID situation going on amongst everything else. Um, So here we are again, you know, kind of separated. So hopefully, you know, one of these days. Um, But at the same time, on the backside of all that, it gives us all time to read and research and write and come up with ideas. And, uh, you know, hopefully you're caught up enough where you heard the Phoenix Lights. 
And again, thank you, Ian. That was an idea from one of our Patreon members. Uh, and I thought that episode turned out pretty good. Things that I didn't know that was kind of, you know, released. I thought it was yeah. kind of neat. But, yeah, I just wish every event that ever exists doesn't get fucking shot down. I, oh, yeah. Yeah, I know. I've been listening to Strange Arrivals that's basically like a podcast series that so far, at least the first season, is just about the Betty and Barney Hill case. And it's been basically like what we did to the Warrens, and it's making me very sad. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> that's uh, And we didn't do good on the Warrens. That's, uh, I mean, it's, it's uh, really interesting, and it's really well done, so I recommend listening to it. It's just pissing me off because it's basically all like, well, actually... It's probably mm. really this. And I'm just like, God damn it. Let it be fucking aliens. <laughs> yeah. You know, well, it's a healthy skepticism. That's the thing. And as long as we stay on that track, I, th- I think we're doing okay. But it is kind of yep. a fucking downer when you find out maybe it wasn't the fucking thing, you know? Yeah. So anyway, um, yeah. on this one, John, I'm going to kind of throw it to you. So, you know, I kind of led the Phoenix Ice a little bit. You led this one. You've been reading a book that... I get God. It's more than a book. I, I think it's a fucking doorstop. <laughs> Give us a right? shot of that bad dude. It's a. This thing is a textbook. It's the Encyclopedia <laughs> Rendlesham-ia. It's the oh, Rendlesham Enigma, and I have been reading it. It's written by Jim Penniston. He's going to be the main character, one of the main characters in this story that we're going to tell you. And Gary Osborne helped him write it, or helped write it as well. Um, yeah, this thing is just. That's, that's a fucking ridiculous. phone book. That's yeah, the white pages, crazy. dude. I bet you so, rip that in half. I bet you you can't do that. Oh, there's no way. I'll try on film. <laughs> oh, yeah. No. I need to channel some Buddhist monk to have that ability. To help you do that? So, yeah. Well, that's kind um, of what... Yeah, that's what you're taking a lot of this off of. I started reading a book by Nick Redfern, but I didn't get as far as you are into the Enigma. So, it just like, John, you know, run through this thing. But, but yeah, I mean, what we're going to cover... And I'll let you, I'll throw it on your side a little yeah. bit. So, um, I, like I said, we, I've been reading the Rendlesham Enigma and that's basically where I've done all my research is just this book itself. And I mean, I've heard of the Rendlesham incident because it's one of the most famous UFO cases out there. And I've just, you know, I've seen the ancient aliens. I've seen the Nick Pope stuff. Like I've seen all the things here and there heard about it, but, uh, I've really dived in with this book. And so I thought we would, give our listeners our take and the story of the Rendlesham incident. Yeah. As I'm, it is known as I'm super pumped. Cause this is something I thought I knew a lot about. And as we were talking before we started recording, I'm like, Oh shit, maybe I don't know as much about this as I thought. So yeah, I'm with you, I'm Josh. Excited. I didn't really know. I mean, I've heard of it. I heard the name, but to what expanse, like this basically is the Roswell of, of Britain, if not bigger. And I, I had no clue. It was that much of a thing. Um, yeah, a lot of ins and outs on this one. Yeah. I mean, I was kind of in that same boat before I started reading this. Um, you know, I knew the, the main things like some air force guys saw a UFO or something and there's some recordings of it or something, but, uh, it's a very involved, very involved story, especially anything involving the military. It always is. Yeah, you know, there's something to be said about, I think we've said this before, the military intelligence um, is just a conundrum. It doesn't exist. And it amazes me that you have an organization like the military that just 
sometimes can't get shit together. And I think there's a lot of that in here. Um, but then again, you know, to say, you know, again, I watched a documentary, was reading the book, John, you know, a lot more, but um, there's so many ins and outs and there's so many weeds in this thing. Uh, it really mm-hmm. is crazy. It, it's just absolutely crazy. Yeah. Well, that being said, let's uh, take a deep dive into the Rendlesham incident. So on a chilly Christmas evening back in 1980, Outside of two twin airbases, the Rendlesham Forest was about to play host to one of the most talked about and documented UFO events to ever take place. It is known as Great Britain's Roswell and more famously referred to as the Rendlesham Forest Incident. The events that took place over a three-day period in the forest has had a lasting impact on all who witnessed the seemingly impossible phenomenon. Countless numbers of TV shows and full-length documentaries have been made and multiple books written on this controversial topic. Join us as we weave through this story of truth and lies. And if you haven't heard this story before, let us blow your minds with what you are about to hear. Open the gates. It was dubbed Britain's Roswell. The story goes that a number of U.S. servicemen saw an alien spacecraft near their Air Force base in Rendlesham Forest in Suffolk in 1980. The events began on the evening of the 26th of December when a Sudborn resident in the local village reported a mysterious shape like an upturned mushroom in the sky above his garden. As they get closer to the lights, they realize it's not a crash. It's an aircraft, but unlike any they've ever seen. I picked the eighties just because this happened in nineteen eighty, so I figured that was yeah. That I was liked cute. it. I liked it. <laughs> I was vibing. So yeah, we're gonna take this story from the very, very beginning. We're not gonna start out with them in the forest. So basically, on Christmas of nineteen eighty, December twenty fifth, started out as just a regular day for Staff Sergeant Jim Penniston. He was about to start his six day tour, which basically means his six day work week, essentially. But I guess Wait, they call what? it a tour in military terms. So Box Day, Boxing Day, right? The the Chair Force calls the work week a tour. <laughs> I suppose like they're fucking deploying to Nam or some shit. I don't know. That's that's what he said in the book. He was about to start a six day tour on the twin bases. Don't get and, me started on the Air Force. Fucking <laughs> God. I'm so uh, never mind. Keep going. Hey man, it's it's not my words, but I I, I wanted to use some some uh military verbiage but uh he so the twin bases we're talking about are raf bent waters and raf woodbridge um they are located in suffolk england they're twin air bases and they america acquired them uh during the cold war they used to belong to england but they turned into american air bases uh sometime during the cold war and Staff Sergeant yeah. Pennison, he provided on-the-ground security police duties, and he was responsible for providing supervision of the security force uh, forces. And at that time, he also carried a top-secret U.S. and NATO security clearance and was responsible for the protection of war-making resources on those bases. So mm-hmm. if I remember right, the reason that they became populated with uh, U.S. military, I think they were still joint bases. So I think right. that the RAF was still there also. Mm-hmm. But the reason the reasoning for that was, if I remember right, there was a nuclear wing that was stationed at one of the bases. 
Yeah, and I, I and I think they were trying to kind of keep that hush hush that they had that. There. Yeah. Well, yeah, and you got to think about the time too. I mean, 1980. You know, we're still we still have some other factions that we're not really you know friends with per se. So that yeah, might I be mean, some of that joint you know cooperation going on. Mm-hmm. And I mean, the 1980s were politically very sketchy. You know, very tumultuous times in the 80s. Very, and we also set up. Uh, naval bases and air force bases in pretty much every country that we had a foothold in after world war two. So absolutely. Mm. Yeah. Good times. Good times good, had by all just good times guys. <laughs> love it. Love the energy. Love the energy. Great. So Jim Pennison, he um, just kind of walked around the bases. He reported for duty on Christmas evening. Uh, he bang- began making his rounds to the various posts around RF bent waters. And once he kind of, did his duties at Bentwaters. His plan was to go over to Woodbridge and car- basically carry on with his duties. But being that it was Christmas night, the bases were virtually quiet. Like there, there wasn't anything going on besides the dudes that were supposed to be on duty, kind of doing their things around the bases. But really, the the most exciting thing was they were playing Christmas songs over the radio, and there was uh, a dude assigned to be DJ, and he was taking requests. So, I mean, that's about as exciting as it was getting over there. But as Jim Penniston was kind of doing his rounds and doing all that stuff, um, a 20-year-old airman first class named John Burroughs was patrolling the perimeter of Woodbridge with his superior and on-site supervisor, Staff Sergeant Bud Steffens. And as they patrolled around the perimeter and carried on with small talk, Stefan suddenly noticed strange red and blue lights coming from outside of the RAF Woodbridge base. And it seemed like these lights were coming from the top of the pine trees in the Rendlesham forest. And that is just, it was, it seemed like it was coming just due east of, there's a place called the East Gate. And Burroughs, I guess, from everything I've read in this book, it just seems like Burroughs was just a 20-year-old kid. like Just like I was in the Navy. You sign up in 19 and... Just like you know, he, he doesn't sound like he's anything. got it together. Like you think right. of it, you think of a naval officer and you think of like, yes, sir. No, sir. Straight. Like, yes, pay attention. Everything. But like Not the this case. kid, <laughs> this, it's from everything I'm gathering from what I've read, it seems like John Burroughs is just a damn kid in the military, which is pretty yeah, common it, you know and more than likely it was his first uh, like his first duty 20 years old again he probably he can't join any military before 18 you know he went through boot mm-hmm. camp he went through maybe an a school if he was army navy um and this was his first gig i mean i knew a lot of guys that went over to germany and england and japan you know across i was in japan and it's the same thing you don't really know what's going on you're oh, just yeah. doing your day to day as best you can you know yeah my so. i mean my dad joined the marines in vietnam it's- late 17 so yeah yeah i mean i get it but so burroughs didn't see these lights at first and he was just like off doing whatever i think he you know him and stephens were having like some small talk and he just wasn't really paying attention what the hell probably boring shit stephens was saying so i guess he kind of had stephens had to exclaim like what is that have you seen that before and the area they were looking at had like tall Corsican pl- uh, pine trees, basically as tall as like high as 80 feet and were roughly about five to 10 feet apart from one another. 
And Burrow says he then looked to where Stephens was pointing and saw what he later described as different colored lightings, green, red, blue, and white lights. And by the time that he looked, the lights had descended into the tree line. So both men had observed these lights, which by now were deep inside the tree line of the woods and had caused the surrounding forest to light up. The two men were completely mesmerized and baffled as to just what the hell they were seeing. They decided to go off base and into the forest without any permission to see what it was they were seeing. <laughs> Mistake number one. <laughs> I just imagine Stephens and Burroughs just like fucking Burroughs just being like, yeah, 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 kid, shut up. Just being so annoyed and not even paying attention to anything he's saying. And that's why I had to be like, look over here, man. Have you ever seen anything like this before? (laughs) Yeah. um, And uh, John Burroughs gives the excuse that why they just decided to go out into the forest and not um, tell anyone is because they had their firearms. And I guess once they leave the base, they're American military, but they're, stepping onto English soil. Um, so he's like, we didn't have, we didn't have anybody to give our guns to. And we wanted to like, kind of check out a little further, what was going on out in the forest. So they just kind of like Stephens told him to open the combination to the East gate. And they just kind of like dipped out. And so they continued East down East gate road until they came to a T junction in the road facing Rendlesham forest. Burroughs said that the two of them exited the vehicle and immediately noticed static electricity in the air. And it's from here that Burroughs says that both he and Stephens observed a large glowing white light coming from somewhere inside the woods. Hmm. And at this point in time, it appears that the men were seeing two different sources of light, one glowing white light closer to the road that they were on and blue and red lights that were coming from deeper inside the forest. And the two of them talked about what they should do you know what the hell they were seeing like they were pretty confused even uh bud Stephens had parked the car in the direction back to the base right like he, they didn't just park the car and get out like he was like all right i'm gonna park this thing just in case i get out because i think they were just kind of sketched out on what the hell it was i mean no one was thinking ufo at this point but uh he was prepared to get in the car and just go well that and like if if they wandered out off the uh, American soil of the Air Force Base um, into just like regular old England with their guns, that's kind of illegal. See, so that was the thing. I'm glad you brought that up because that's what we call, again, military, we call double jeopardy. So, you know, you're now you're off of military property. So if you would have got guys, they would have got caught out there with, you know, weapons, it probably wouldn't have been a good thing because there's nothing the military can do when you're on civilian territory, they can prosecute you technically. So yeah. that was kind of a, uh, it's a little sketchy move, you know, for them to just go, Hey, let's go research. But yeah. then again, it's eighties. So, and, and Britain has a very, very different take on the right to bear arms than the United States. Does. Oh yeah. Uh, basically you don't have that right there. Like you, you have to have special permits and basically you can own like guns to be on a farm yeah. legally. Like, you could have a shotgun if you're on a farm, basically, and that's about it, to my understanding. Japan like, was the same way. Get yeah, real, real, real special permission to have anything besides that. Right. Yeah. So just a side uh, Burroughs. So Burroughs and Stephens. Stephens is Burroughs' uh, superior, and they kind of talk about like, okay, we need to report this. 
but rather than calling it just over the radio because the radios are just like unsecure public can tap into those radio frequencies and everything. They hightail it back to the base, uh, back to the Eastgate security uh, post and they reach for a landline. And once, once they get to the Eastgate and get the landline, they report the sightings to a Sergeant McCabe. And I guess that Burroughs being this 20 year old kid was kind of known for playing pranks and just kind of being a goofball or something like that. So Sergeant McCabe didn't even really take his uh, report seriously. Well, like, yeah. yeah, Okay. Like, (laughs) it's like, whatever, whatever Burroughs, like, you're not, you're not pulling one on me. You know, he figured that it's Christmas. It's boring around here. Like there's no action happening on Christmas. Like everybody's (laughs) just relaxing, eating food, listening to Christmas songs over the radio. Like, is this your Christmas prank? Did did you just put coal in my stocking? Type fucking thing. Yeah. Well, that, yeah, and I mean, even uh, McCabe went and like checked radars, didn't see anything in the air. There was no scheduled uh, flights in that area at the time. So he just wouldn't believe him. So, and John Burroughs was pretty excited at this time. And he's described as being pretty damn amped up this whole time during the whole event. Um, he handed the phone to Bud Steffens. And Bud Steffens is like, yeah, there's something out here, man. Like, I I do not know what that is, but there's something out here that we need to we need to check out what it is. Possibly a down craft was basically the the consensus, basically. Yeah. Um. Also, it's worth mentioning that Staff Sergeant Bud Steffens has never made an official statement or given any interviews at all. I was going to say, I'm glad you said that because I caught that in the documentary I was watching. Like he just mums a word for that guy. You know, he's he hasn't said anything. We'll get into that when we get into the di- disinformation. But um, yeah, it's pretty interesting that he's just like, nope, not even going to talk about it. Which I don't know. I guess in the UFO land that kind of position kind of gives it credibility. Yeah. Well, in a weird way, it's, it's, if you deny it, then that's an admission. Like uh, Glenn Greenwald was talking about on an episode of the black vault that I listened to recently. Like a denial is basically tacit admission to a lot of UFO researchers. Like, so if he came out and was like, nah, didn't see anything. It's all a bunch of bullshit. Uh, people would be like, he's lying. But yeah. if uh, if he came out and confirmed it, people would probably think he was cashing in. I don't know. It's like a weird paradox in UFO yeah. research. And I, I literally listened to that just the other day. Uh, John Greenwald, that was a... Oh, yeah. Sorry, oh, yeah. Glenn Greenwald, a journalist. Yeah. That <laughs> so basically after that report garnered wings and went to Center for Security Control, CSC, um, it went down the chain of command from there and... Basically, while all this excitement is going on, like there's something going on in the forest. There's all these lights popping up, you know. It's quite the spectacle. Staff Sergeant Jim Penniston was in the chow hall, and he was just about to sit down for a cup of coffee. He was about to enjoy a hot meal. It was approaching midnight, and he says that he was sitting down, and he was told to contact CSC immediately via landline. Which, when you're talking landlines back in the day, like it's something. It's a thing. 
it's it's top secret you know like no one can hear this except the people on the right. on the phone you know it's not going off over the radio and so i think staff sergeant coffee dave coffee told him uh picked up the other end and let jim know that he needed to head out to the east gate and meet up with two law enforcement personnel via Stephens and Burroughs and coffee told him there was a quasi emergency going on and he wanted him to investigate. Jim obviously wanted more information, uh, but that's about all coffee was uh, like willing to elaborate on. And he said like, once he got to the East gate, they, you know, they would let him know what's going on, but like he needed to get out there and he wasn't going to be given any information. Well, and they're they're having these conversations in the middle of a chow hall too. So I'm sure that mm -hmm. some of that is, you know, Hey, let's only say what we need to say, you know, Mm -hmm. and no more type thing. So yeah. 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 So since, uh, coffee wasn't giving him, he wasn't willing to elaborate on any information. Penniston thought that it might not be that big of a deal. And he asked like, you know, can I just eat my meal and then head out there when I'm done? Like, and Coffee stressed that he needed to leave immediately, and this was really important. So, mm. reluctantly, Jim Penniston puts down his coffee, stops eating his food, and begins to head out to the East Gate. And right before he heads out, he checks his watch, and he notes that it is two minutes after midnight, the morning of December 26th. And this is going to be the last quote-unquote normal night jim was going to experience for years to come and years is a stretch term that's amazing i wish it had been two minutes to midnight i i thank you i was saying iron main too but that yeah, wasn't the case yeah didn't come to fruition um we're gonna play a clip then right after that we're gonna do a commercial break and then we're gonna come back to this story john thank you i appreciate it in this clip we're gonna play uh basically is a preset of uh peniston and what yeah. he really you know, he didn't know what he was encountering and what he was about to step into, but uh, little did he know he would. So, stand by, guys. Here's exactly what I was thinking. I'm going out there with my mindset was like this. I'm out, going to go out and set up an enter control point for a downed aircraft, a crashed. Uh, we're going to go ahead and tag uh, classified material and body parts. That's what I'm thinking. And then we're going to set up the enter control point so we can get emergency response vehicles out there. When I got up to the area where I seen it wasn't an aircraft crash, and it was something that I couldn't identify, I was perplexed, uh, not understanding what I was seeing. I, I, I hadn't been trained for anything even close to that, you know. So here's my, the gear adjustments that were, were switching were just crazy. I went from uh, crash and recovery uh, thoughts to, um, I don't know what I'm looking at. I don't know what is in front of me. Good evening, ma'am. Hey, y'all. What can I do you for? Can I have a glass of Chardonnay? I'm sorry, darling. We don't serve that here. Any Merlot? I'm pretty sure you don't want these feet going nowhere near them grapes. All righty. How about a craft beer? Oh, yeah. We got plenty of craft beer. Which one you want? No, not crap beer. Craft beer. Oh, no, hell no. I'm, I'm pretty sure the bar down the street serves that. Okay, well, what do you serve? I'm glad you asked. 
Welcome to the Backwoods Barcast. We serve up moonshine, cheap beer, bottom shelf liquor, and stories even harder to swallow. Join Nick and Brittany and the janitor Stephen as we discuss southeastern mysteries and mayhem, including but not limited to UFOs, true crime, the paranormal, and much more. So knock four times, grab a stool, let the bar talk commence, and as always, drink more beer. It only took Staff Sergeant Pennison four minutes to drive from the Chow Hall to the East Gate. When he arrived, he was greeted by Staff Sergeant Bud Steffens and a very excited Airman First Class John Burroughs. <laughs> Jim still had no idea why he was out there, and he first thought it had something to do with John Burroughs because he was just acting so fucking crazy that he's like, okay, is is he why I'm out here? Well, is, this not- why, like, is this why I had to put down my coffee and food is for this psycho? Well, not only that, and- but but I, I think really that the guy has kind of a, a reputation of being a prankster. So, you know, maybe that I would sure everybody kind of thought the same thing. <laughs> maybe that's yeah, going that through the back and- of his mind. I think excited 20-year-olds rarely get taken seriously by anybody. Yep. True. Yeah, I, I don't think I've ever taken an excited 20-year-old seriously including myself was one yeah Yeah, exactly (laughs) not even me um but stefan's assured jim that burroughs was fine and that he was not the reason jim had to leave his hot meal behind at the chow hall stefan stretched out his arm and pointed to a section of rundlesham forest and jim followed the direction in which stefan's was pointing and he noticed way off in the distance that a part of the canopy of the forest had a distinct dome of white yellowish light over it, which extended some way out on both sides of what at first looked like a multiple array of colors emanating from the center of the forest floor. And Jim's first thought was that it looked unusual for sure, but it most definitely had to be a fire. I mean, what else, what else could it possibly be? He saw yellow, orange, red, bluish types of glowing light, which was standard with aircraft crashes. And that's kind of like, jet fuel and like titanium mixing together and it kind of makes those certain colors so yeah yeah um that's i mean what else really could it be i mean it just kind of looked like from from a a rational kind of point of view immediately it just looked like a plane crash but after he he said after watching the lights for no more than one minute jim says he noticed a red light blinking on and off in five to ten second intervals directly in the center of the area and at ground level and there was also a blue light beneath the red light which was also blinking but mostly the blue light was steady and it's just possible that the you know the waving of branches and leaves and trees kind of like get in the way and kind of like create the illusion that it's blinking but that's more of what it probably was but there was just something about this whole thing that wasn't making sense um there were no flights scheduled in the area at that time and there was no apparent smoke or smell of smoke just a glowing white yellowish dome light so jim then asked the two law enforcement officers if they heard an explosion because naturally there's a fire there's got to be some type of crash and burrows immediately you know remember he's super hyped up right now he's just like no and Stefan's answer and <laughs> Pennison is annoyed with this dude. I would he's, be too. Yeah, he's just like, okay, I'm not I'm not dealing with you. And Stefan's A one C. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. 
drop down and give me 50 A1C. I'm annoyed. Uh, but Stefan's answered like a little more calmly and said, no, Jim, there was no explosion and no crash. It landed. Hmm. And how could that possibly be? Jim thought there was no way an aircraft could have landed safely in those woods. The woods are way too like, you just can't land an aircraft in the woods. So the fact that he said it landed just did not make any sense to him. Weather and balloons. I'm going to say it was a weather balloon. Can I say that right <laughs> off the get there, No, it, Shane, you idiot. It was swamp gas. <laughs> God damn Jeez. it. I missed that whole thing. You are so stupid. Oh, You're both st- wrong. It was a horned owl. Stupid piece of shit. God, so sorry, guys. It was just a horny guy. <laughs> um, so he asked, like, okay, if it landed, then was it a helicopter maybe? And Burroughs excited and agitated he took a big deep breath because i think like okay i'm not getting across here i'm just (laughs) acting like a lunatic i'm not making myself uh i'm acting like a 20 year old i need to stop so he takes he burrows just takes a deep breath and he says staff sergeant peniston there was no crash it landed there was no explosion and then Penniston asked Burroughs while he was trying to tell him, and Burroughs answered back that I think a UFO just landed over there in the forest. And obviously, Jim Penniston is blown away with what he's just told. And not blown away like, oh my God, a UFO. He's blown away like, are you, are, holy fucking shit, you stupid idiot. Like, yeah. I mean, how do you process that information? I would be yeah. so you know? fucking mad at that very yeah, second yeah, if yeah. I was Jim Penniston and I just got called away from fucking lunch or dinner Meat, or whatever. Meatloaf on Christmas Day. Because some yeah, it's 20 Christ- year old dipshit said he saw a UFO. Oh, yeah, it's Christmas night. So he basically thought John Burroughs was losing his mind. Like 100% John Burroughs is losing his mind. So he looked over to Bud Steffens. Um, who was clearly, I mean, he's the superior guy in this whole thing and he's acting way more mature in this situation, but he's definitely disturbed as well. What they're seeing because what they're seeing doesn't make sense in their rational minds and what they can explain, Hmm. you know, to this and Burroughs or uh, Bud Steffens didn't say anything, but just kind of shook his head in agreement with what Burroughs said to, uh, Penniston. He, he's, you know, Jim Penniston just doesn't know what to think right now. Like, all he, you know, Stefan's agreed with a nod. So, however unlikely all this information was, uh, Jim Penniston decided that this matter was no longer a police matter and they were now dealing with some sort of a security matter because, you know, is it a classified uh, aircraft that wasn't going to be scheduled for a flight, like is not on any books. Like, so he kind of thinks that he's uh, dealing with a r- highly classified matter at this point. Well, and can I just say too, and you're also, I mean, we covered this before, but you're still dealing in the eighties. You're dealing with, you know, relationships that we have not had this confident in other countries. When you are on the military on that side and you see these things, I mean, that's running through your head. You don't know what these other countries are doing. You're in a foreign country as it is being, you know, sub base type thing, you know, partnering and everything. There's just more to add to the story on 
how, if you think, I mean, I know it sounds kind of weird, like, oh, maybe this is a secret spacecraft that nobody know or an aircraft, but it's kind of legitimate in this time frame because there was a lot of stuff going on. So who knows what the other side's doing and who knows what the other side has, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and it could be, yeah, anything. It could literally be anything out there right now. And I think, honestly, the logical thing is, is there's some type of classified, highly classified thing that just crashed in the woods. I mean, that's, that makes the most earthly sense. Very legitimate. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I mean, you're, you're in charge of the security forces on two United States air force bases. Like you need mm-hmm. to think radically, radically, logically, and rationally <laughs> combine those two words there. So Penniston decided to call master Sergeant JD Chandler at Sec- central security control and he, uh, Master Sergeant J.D. Chandler, was the overall flight chief for both of the bases. And the, ta- the time was now 12.15. So Jim picked up a direct line and soon realized all the important players were already on the line. Um, he asked, you know, Jim was going to call somebody else, and all of a sudden everybody kind of piped in, everybody that w- was important on that base, and like, uh, don't worry, we're already, we're already on what's going on. So he began to tell everyone what he saw and what he had been told by the two law enforcement officers. And immediately the officers went into game mode. They were checking with radar towers, doing somebody did a quick inventory on any possible missing military craft, but everything was accounted for. There was nothing missing. There were no flights scheduled. So Staff Sergeant Coffey then came back on and reported that RAF Bodzi at Eastern Radar confirmed that they had triangulated, triangulated the radar sighting and that radar had been tracking an unidentified bogey or unidentified object about three miles out from Bent Waters, but had lost contact with it some 15 minutes or so prior when suddenly it disappeared, having dropped from radar imaging somewhere near the Woodbridge base, which mm. is where there, where Rendlesham is right outside of. Right, right. So basically with the strength of the radar to go off of and still thinking this could be like a high security risk, Jim Penniston was given orders ultimately from the base commander, Colonel uh, Theodore Conrad, uh, also known as Ted Conrad to do a first response off base. And they then told him that he needed to choose one of the officers to take. So obviously he was going to take, I mean, I'll give you one guess who he wanted to take is <laughs> Bud Stephenson. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but as soon as he kind of looked uh, towards Stephens, I guess he was just like, no, no, no that's way. not going to be the pick. No way. <laughs> under, like under his breath too, like just like, nope, not going to do it. Not mm. going to do it. Um, Which if that's true also <laughs> makes a lot more sense as to why, Stephens has never come forward and said anything about I it. I was gonna say, Ooh. yeah, that might be Lynn. Kind of like when you're lined up to get picked on the dodgeball team and you're the last motherfucker to get pointed mm-hmm. at. Yeah, I don't think he would have said nothing after that whole thing. So, yeah. Yeah. God. And mu- so much to Jim Pennison's dismay, uh, Burroughs was more than happy and eager to go with him. Of course like, he, he was. He was just like, yeah, of course. Like he's like, yes, I want to go. Like a jackrabbit. So, there's another guy that just arrived actually to um, the East Gate where they were, and his name was Airman Ed Cabinsag, and he mm-hmm. just arrived. So 
from the time that Pennison arrived at the East Gate to the time the makeshift team began their journey to the supposed crash site. That took no longer than 20 minutes. So now we have Jim Penniston, John Burroughs, and Ed Cabinsag about to make their journey to the supposed crash type uh, crash site. So they climbed in their CJ five Jeep drove as far as they could into the woods before they had to abandon the vehicle because they just couldn't drive any further. So they out Jim Pennison grabbed a couple flashlights, gave one to Burroughs. He kept one for himself. Uh, he also grabbed a 35 millimeter film, which had film in it and put it in his pocket. And as they got closer and closer to the supposed crash site, they started having strong interference and signal failure problems with their radios. So Pennison decided to make a relay uh, of sorts between the men. So he had three dudes. So basically Ed Cabin Sag was going to stay the furthest. Like on the edge of the forest, right? Where they Yeah, on the edge of the forest within shouting range of burrows. And event you know, and eventually Jim Pennison was going to be the one at the crash site. So he was going to yell to Burroughs, which Burroughs was going to yell to Ed Cabinsag. And then Cabinsag, where his radio was still working, would then relay that message back to the base. I mean, and that that sounds dumb to a certain point, but that that makes sense. If you don't know, don't trust your technology to a certain point, use good old-fashioned yelling. I mean, if that's the thing, especially as, as dense as that force is and the things that were occurring and happening. I don't know. I think that was probably a good move to make, you know, it's like a bucket brigade for reporting intelligence. So very insecure and probably not going to get the original message back exactly as said, but telephone game (laughs) effective. Well, yeah. I mean, when you, when your technology isn't working and that's all you have to rely on, what else are you going to do? Really? I mean, nobody brought a string in a cup with nothing. Them, so, you know, yeah. So as Pendleton and Burroughs advanced further into the tree line, they became aware of the air coming alive in some thick energy. They could just like feel the air. And both men said they experienced a distinct crackling and tingling sensation on and around them. They said their hair was standing up on their necks and they could sense a very strong electromagnetic field around them. And for every step they got closer, their movement slowed as if they were walking through water that was chest deep, which is crazy. God. Somehow they were just yeah. like fighting the, the element somehow. And they struggled to move forward towards the light and everything be, excuse me, became more disoriented as if kind of what they were experiencing was some type of like time distortion. And as they got closer, the light was only getting brighter and it got so bright at times that like Jim had to squint his eyes as he was moving through the trees just to barely be able to see. Hmm. Um, But every once in a while the light would dim and he could see like a little more clearly. So it was just like super bright, dim kind of little, like somehow you're just like battling to try and get into this like lighted area in the forest like let me ask you when you're finally gonna go you know what i'm gonna be the guy in the back i don't want to do this anymore i don't feel like i want to be the first one to see the lights i mean that's a lot of but then again if you've never seen it and you're i i don't know that's very yeah that's very interesting it's crazy i'm team stephens in that regard from the (laughs) beginning i would have been like i'll be the guy at the back yeah i'll be be at the jeep you guys uh you guys move on Good, good, good on you. Oh, you, man. you guys are so brave. You guys are so freaking brave. 
Let me let me pinch your <laughs> chest. You guys are awesome. <laughs> yeah. So Penison could see that inside the effervescent white yellowish blur that was lighting up the forest were definite distinct colors, red, orange, and blue mostly. And these lights would be steady for a few seconds and would then move and blink. At other times, the lights would appear to merge together as one, lighting up the whole forest. All the while, he noticed that the forest was absolutely silent. But the silence would not last, though. All of a sudden, out of nowhere, the forest burst alive with sounds and activity. The deer were screeching, and the flapping of the bird's wings was at an almost deafening pitch. And it seemed as if all the animals and birds were going in the opposite direction of the soldiers and hightailing it as far away from the landing site as possible. So if I can make a quick note, and we're going to have this actually on part two where we kind of dissect the other side, but there was also other reports that were recorded that uh, they specifically talked about farm animals just going crazy. Like, you know, the, the, yeah. because if you're looking at where the bases are, how it's described, you know, you have your two twin bases, but there's nothing but farmland surrounding them. And mm-hmm. they were on that, that forest edge line. They could easily hear that. And, and it was very succinct where there's multiple reports of, God, the, you know, the, the farm animals are going crazy. You know, they, they just, I've never heard them stirred up like that before. Um, you know, and these guys are, they're on the base and they probably hear that on their patrols on a daily basis. So to them, it probably did sound like it was a little out of space for them, you know? Yeah. Yeah, quite possibly. Um. <clears throat> So now the time was exactly one in the morning and the men were now just a mere 50 yards away from their target and in an advantage position to now be, to now be able to see the target more clearly. And inside the white yellowish dome, they could now see there was an actual object in the clearing and that it had to be mechanical. I Hmm. can't imagine that. No, I can't imagine that. No, me neither. I don't, I don't get that. So Penniston said that Burroughs was just jabbering. His words, he was just jabbering on about how no fucking way this was a downed aircraft. No fucking way this was a downed aircraft. And that only served to just annoy the fuck out of Penniston even more. And he still thought, okay, Burroughs is losing it. Well, so it, doesn't, move, it doesn't help the situation. That's a problem. Yeah. You got this like, asshole dude. over here just going crazy, you know, and you're trying yeah. to figure out, assess your situation. It mm-hmm. can't help. Yeah. So as they moved forward, the light dimmed and there was kind of a gray, yellowish, white bubble around what appeared to be a dark mechanical craft. And it became apparent very quickly that there had been no aircraft that had crashed in this area. There wasn't any fire. There was no debris, no bodies, no smoke or smell of anything burning. And now by this point, Jim has completely dismissed the notion that an aircraft had crashed there. Like there's just, there's nothing there's this is definitely not an air crash so now he was just about 20 feet away and there was clearly an object surrounded by just a bunch of light again i mean there's so much light they they're constantly saying you know saying this it's like dirty gray white bubble Mm -hmm. of light Mm -hmm. dirty because it looked like there was something dark or black in the center of it yeah that um god the plot gets thicker so we're going to play another clip uh, with Panistan kind of describing what this looks like. We're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to come back and, and finish this encounter. It, it gets deeper in the woods, if I must say, past this. Um, yeah, damn. You know, just, just amazing. So stand by, guys. 
The craft was a triangular craft. It was uh, 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 black in color, very shiny. Uh, it was metal, but it was smooth as glass. Uh, uh, inside the fabric of this triangular craft, uh, there was a uh, light movement of red and blue running through the fabric of it. I had pasted off and it measured nine feet by nine feet by nine feet. Uh, it was approximately, uh, based on my height, I'm six foot two, so I estimated it at uh, seven feet tall. Um, it was uh, uh, very small for, uh, for aircraft. Um, it um, uh, had one of the things that I was looking at initially with it was I was looking for um, uh, obvious things that aircraft have looking for landing gear looking for intake looking for exhaust looking for crew compartment looking for windows it was void of all those Elijah are you ready to bring on the weird Yes, Will I am. Are you ready to bring on the weird? Did you did you just make a Will I am joke? Uh, yeah, I did. <laughs> nice. I'll allow it. Anyway, we're just a couple of harmless guys digging into weird things we don't know much about. We're just trying to figure out what the hell is happening in the world outside our homes. Do we get things wrong? Without a doubt. Are we learning from those mistakes? Not anytime soon. Are you entertained by the crap we're talking about? Of course. That's why I always listen to the show. You listen? Alright, what, what do you like to listen to about the show? I like aliens, conspiracies, cryptids, NWO, shadow government, you name it. What? But, oh, hold on. Do the aliens come from inside the Earth instead of interstellar travel? What made the conspiracy start? Why did that cryptid evolve to do the things it does? Who runs this NWO? Listen in as we dive into all manners of subjects as we bring on the weird. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Reddit. You can listen to clips of our episodes on our YouTube channel. Listen, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts and Podchaser.com. You can also listen to us on Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts. So, Jim thought that the craft could actually sense his presence. And he said once he felt that it could sense his presence, it presence it let out like a bright flash of bluish white light which he said whited out his entire view and he thought this thing was going to explode and this whole experience that he has with this craft the whole time he's like this thing's this thing's going to explode so he hits the deck because he's like embrace he's like expecting an explosion and he's kind of behind a berm so kind of that classic military behind a berm you know cover and everything yeah 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 <laughs> but Nothing happened. I mean, it was just a burst of bright light, but there was no explosion. There was no trauma. He was fine. There was, you know, no debris of any kind. And kind of just as soon as that flash came, it equally dissipated. Um, now, and oh, I'm sorry. Sorry. Go Tom. ahead. No, go ahead. Real quick. So he, I mean, of course, you're, you're taken out of the book. Um, that little release of what you well, actually, I'm jumping ahead of the game. I apologize. Go ahead and finish where you're going. I've got a question soon after, though, once you kind of get past this little. Well, I word. mean, you can. So basically, he's walking up to this thing, but there's still like this, what he describes as like a energy force field around it. 
Um, he also describes it as the sphere of influence. But as he walks into this kind of area of light and everything, things to be, uh, become like a lot clearer because by this point, it's it's just a lot of light. But you can kind of tell that something's in there, but you it, it, nothing's clear. You know, it's kind of like you're not wearing glasses, and it's like, yeah, I can kind of tell some stuff's going on there, but. Um, but once once he finally gets in this, everything is clear, um, and it looked it kind of seemed to him that the craft was acting as like a distortion of some type. Hmm. But once he was fully engulfed in the light, things were clear and distinct, and the colors more vibrant. And he said, "There's just like the darkest blacks." And then he saw what appeared to be a fully intact black triangular streamlined craft and Jim says he witnessed distinct circular and pie shaped lights that were blinking on and off and moving sequentially just under the black shiny surface and around the craft like a digital display he realized then that where he was standing was void of all sound the forest was Hmm. still there were no rustling of branches or twigs breaking under his feet no animals rustling in the distance nothing just complete silence so the steady and dominant light began to weaken and the craft was becoming even more pronounced. And Jim says that quote, I was mesmerized by the color. I was mesmerized by the colored blobs of blue, yellow, orange, and red lights, mostly orange, which all varied in size and shape. Some were six inches in diameter while others would grow as large as 12 inches. Wow. But these blobs would merge into each other before slowly fading away again, as if melting back into the molded fabric of the craft. For example, the bluish blobs of light would emerge from the black exterior, beginning with a bluish gray, and then would change smoothly to a brilliant blue, while other blobs of color would as last longer and would change shape. He also said that the craft was very smooth and curved. It seemed to have been created as if like from a single mold, the it was shiny black opaque skin was smooth like glass and reflected the surrounding forest like a dark mirror it's funny like you hear the created from a single mold about a lot of ufo stuff um like uh bob lazar talked about that also uh from the things he saw in the hangars at area 51 and also that's how the nautilus is described in Twenty Thousand leagues under the sea <laughs> it's a really so, just thought i'd throw that out there yeah ah, that's a nice little oh there you go but no you but you're right on the bob lazar and everything a lot of reports are when they have this open report that they can see that like there's no seams there's no rivets there's no nothing there's no way it's just one piece yeah it's, it's just, just one thing. odd yeah yeah yeah, and what he described is basically a black triangle, nine feet by nine feet by nine feet, with like kind of like a little weird dome on it or something. But all of a sudden, he realizes that he grabbed a camera. So when remember when he left the jeep? Yeah, yeah. He grabbed two flashlights and he grabbed a thirty-five millimeter camera, and. That that camera had, he said, 36 black and white monochrome photos. So he stood back and just started taking pictures of this thing. But Jim Pennison says that when his eye was up at the viewer, he was just kind of really nervous because he kind of felt vulnerable because like his attention wasn't 
he wasn't able to look at his surroundings anymore. Like he was like, it, it was just focused on this viewer. So he just basically snapped every single picture right there before there, there were a lot of things that once he began to investigate further, he was going to be bummed that he didn't take pictures of. I, I get that <clears throat> intense feeling of fear right there though, especially like blocking out your field of vision, except for a, a very small frame of it. Like you're experiencing something completely unknown. You're already focusing on it so hard that your, your field of vision is, is kind of narrow anyway. Like, I, I totally understand all of all of that and why you would do that. Like, just be like, a lot of witnesses say done. that though is the thing. A lot of them do. I mean, could you imagine if you're in that situation? You know, it's very yeah. I mean, I, I well, I mean, absolutely. yeah, you're taking you're taking your view to a two centimeter uh, wide yeah. thing. You know, yeah. like right there when. Now I did try to re- on some of the research that I was doing on my side because I stumbled across that that there were pictures taken. You know, alas, I couldn't find anything. There was nothing really out there um, other than what we'll play here in the future, which I thought was amazing in itself. But I, um, yeah, kind of a bummer if that's the case. And I'm sure that even if those pictures were taken, that camera wasn't owned by him. I'm sure it was a military camera. Well, you know, yeah, and cetera, it cetera. kind of it kind of goes. He talks about that. He goes to get them developed, and when he gets them back, all the the pictures didn't take. Like it was just there Makes was sense. nothing, nothing that took, and he kind of says like, "Oh, it was probably radiation messing with the film or something like that." Well, um, or he took him just he, like he, my he, what? Or he took him just like my mom took him. She'd get everything lined up, and everybody would stand still, and then in the minute she click it, she'd move the camera. Like say cheese, every fucking picture of my family is a blur. Yeah. Every well, he forgot to take the lens cap off. <laughs> that too. <laughs> Yeah, so he he did develop he try and develop these, and I mean, it just didn't pan out ah, one way or the other. And I I mean I I remember taking pictures with actual film, and you know you'd get your roll, and half of them would be just like nothing. Yeah. So that's pretty that's a pretty big bummer, but you know, and it's just typical of UFO stories that nothing on the camera, like no pictures, were able to be recovered. But so uh, he he blasts all these pictures and he starts investigating this craft that he's seen. And I mean, he's still not thinking. He's still not thinking that this is like an alien spacecraft. Like, so he's he's trying to investigate and he's taking notes and because he is security, he's he's trying to obtain a, as much information as he possibly can about what he's seen and what he is seeing is there's no way that this thing could have landed in there because the trees are super close together. There's like a, it's in a little clearing, but nothing can like really land in there. Um, He's not noticing any engine or propulsion unit. He's looking for access ports, ports or a crew compartment or a cockpit or anything like that. But he couldn't see any of that or anything that resembled any of those things. There were no visible handles, seams, rivets, sharp angles on the craft. It was void of windows, flaps, a horizontal stabilizer, vertical stabilizer, a rudder. And it made sense to him that this had to be some type of drone after he was just noticing all of this stuff. Like there's, there's no way that uh, anybody could be in here. 
um, because it did seem so small to him. And he, he figured his stride was about three feet. So he walked the perimeter of the craft and kind of realized it. Like you heard in that clip that it was nine feet by nine feet by nine feet. And he was making all of these measurements by like off his, rough, off his measurements kind of too. Yeah. You know? Yeah. They're rough yeah. measurements, but right. you know, the, I think it's a good ballpark. He's six two, So he figured the craft was about seven to eight feet tall. Oh, he, he also ran his hand along the, the craft and he said it was warm to the touch and he could feel like this low energy just vibrating in his body as he was touching this thing like touching a tesla uh ball or whatever those are kind of yeah i guess so um yeah he just said it was like he could feel a continual flow of low voltage electricity running through his hands and moving to his forearms so kind of i guess kind of like that and he says the camera's been put away and he tried to actually rock the thing too so he he freed up both his hands and he tried to push it, but the thing I guess was just solid. If this spaceship's a rocking, don't come a knocking. Don't come a knocking. Yeah, he also said it felt like the energy was dancing on him. Mm, wow. Uh, he looks so he's covered the perimeter. He looks underneath and he notices that there's three indentions in the ground, like significant indentions, but. It doesn't, it looks like it's hovering, but then he notices that it seems like the craft is there's lasers coming out of there's like beams of light coming out of uh, all three corners of the craft, and somehow there's indentions right there. And the craft seems to kind of be heavy if it's going to be making those indentions, but it's just hovering on these thin beams of light that he's seeing underneath the craft. Well, and there's other reports too that, um, that. And there's other witnesses, not just Penniston, that went out there and said that they did see triangular indentions in the area where they saw that, which was, you know, inch and a half to three and a half inches in the ground, uh, kind of in the same pattern from the same reports. Mm. So, you know, and people did the sketch and drew that up. So, I mean, that's something that's legitimate and was verified in other sources. So, I, I don't know. Yeah. As... He gives so he's he's seeing these lasers or beams of light from the bottom. He looks up, he keeps inspecting, and all of a sudden he sees these lack of a better term, like hieroglyphics on the side of this craft. And so finally he's like, Okay, thank God, there's some type of inscription on this that's gonna say US Air Force or it's gonna say right. something you know, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, he was even like, you know, I hope there's a hammer and sickle. Like just any any type of marking. But what he saw, there was there was no marking that he saw that made sense to him. Like none of those marks correlated with anything from any earthly air force. Hmm. Um and describing them, it's kind of like an ancient Egyptian hieroglyphic. But that's just because he doesn't know how to uh, describe what he's seen. So whenever, like, whenever I picture them, I, I think of like uh, the way that they show writing in like the Star Wars universe, or like Predator when he like hits his fucking countdown shit on his wrist, mm-hmm. and it's all like angular runic type things. That I don't know. That's what it always looks like in my mind. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah they they look pretty crazy. So he was kind of like touching them and figuring it out. And there's, there were six symbols, five little ones or five on the bottom. And then there was like a bigger 
circular, triangular type of shape. And Jim says of the experience, I had activated a technology that through light was able to communicate a message to me in ones and zeros and in seconds. I know today that while I was receiving the ones and zeros, I was also made aware of the message, but this was obviously communicated and stored at a subliminal level. As quickly as it started, the transmission simply stopped and was over. The whole thing lasted no more than a minute. Unable to pull my hand back when it first began, I finally felt the large circle triangle symbol release it. And that is... That's so wild. he he basically got downloaded, and this was something that I I researched a little bit. Um, I don't know if he released this originally, but he did after the fact that he, it was a he got downloaded a binary code, yeah, that he can't explain. You know, now whether it was there when the event happened or after the fact, I think the one that I caught was uh, it was a thirty year anniversary, um, and he was finally kind of releasing some of the ins and outs of what was really close to him. He mm-hmm. might release it before that, but I mean that's. I mean, yeah, that's, I mean, that's crazy. I, uh. Yeah. And he, um, once that happened, once this whole thing was over for him, this whole uh, firsthand experience was over, he went home and when he would dream for a week straight, every time he would dream, it would just be one, zero, one, zero, like a pattern of, of those. Hmm. And he started to feel crazy. And that's when he started writing these down. Is because he's like, this keeps happening. I need to write these down. Document, document, document what, somehow, yeah. Yeah, document what was going on. But after after his hand was released, he didn't pull it away. It was released. He had had enough. He was over it. That's he. He had all the evidence that he needed. And he was like, okay, all right. I just got blasted with light in my mind's eye, whatever the hell that is. And zeros and ones were blasting through my head. So he starts walking back and he thinks Burroughs has kind of gone AWOL, bounce, whatever. And as he's backing away, he kind of looked behind him and Burroughs is right there. So Burroughs has seen this whole thing has witnessed this whole thing happen to Jim Peniston. And he was no more than like 10 feet behind him. And as they're backing away, the craft began to like, just move upwards. And it was just kind of like zigzagging through the trees, just straight up, straight up, straight up going super slow too. like Jim said that they could have caught the craft had they ran after it. Like had they ran after it, they could have like, you know, like a kite that's just yeah. you know, hanging out. Yeah. And it finally got about 200 feet above the pine trees and whatever. And it just took off. There was no, uh, there was no air displacement or anything. It was just like, boom, flash, blink of an eye gone. And so they're, I mean, they're just flabbergasted and they, you know, their, their investigation is over. So they start walking and then all of a sudden Burroughs starts freaking out. It's like, Oh my God, it's over there. It's over there. And sure. Shit. They start chasing after it and it was in the sky and the same colors and everything. But at some point, all of a sudden they realized they were following that lighthouse. Jim Pennison realizes they're chasing the lighthouse all of a sudden. 
after they see this thing like 400 yards away, blinking and blinking and blinking. And then black. And he said, as soon like every time they would get closer, it would move again. But then it all of a sudden turned into that lighthouse. Wasn't like the, it was called the, the Rourke forward or something like that. Lighthouse is set out on the, um, the Orford Orfordness yeah. lighthouse. Yeah. Uh, so he, uh, Jim finally gets back. His, their radios are working now. Everything's going on. So he calls his superiors and their superiors, his superiors were just asking if he was just foolishly investigating the Orfordness lighthouse. And Jim was pretty pissed about that. He was pretty like offended. Like, uh, no lighthouses don't fly and they don't change shape into a black triangular craft. Like, <laughs> yeah. I, that, that's funny because that's one of the theories that that we. I mean, again, we'll talk about it after the fact, but it was they try to lump that in, and I've got some notes on that on part two. But just very interesting how there's a lot of people that push that, which I yeah. find funny, you know. Yeah, and it, so and and it is funny actually that by the end of this they were chasing that lighthouse. Right. Right. Yeah, that's fucking crazy. Ah. Uh, it somehow morphed into that. And so they finally made it back to the Jeep and Ed cabin sag was there and they had all had a night. They just drove back to the base in silence. They went back home. Um, and that is, that is night one. And they, before they went back to the base, didn't they revisit the landing site and see that there were three indentations where the craft had been, Yes, that is right. Yeah, uh, Pennison and Burroughs did visit the landing site again, and Burroughs and Pennison both saw that there were indentations in there, and they thought it's better to come back at night to see, or during daylight to see if there's any you know more, marks on the trees right, or right. anything like that. And there were marks on the trees. They came back and they did see indentations in the ground. So that area had been disturbed by something. Oh, absolutely. And I think, and again, you know, we're focusing really on Burroughs and Penniston along with some other, you know, characters in the, in the game, but, um, other people saw that as well. And other people recorded that and documented that as well too. So it's very interesting there, how that, how that, yeah, there's a lot of players that I'm leaving out kind of mm-hmm. because they're not, I don't think they're crucial to the actual story. Sure. And the more and more you talk about these names, the more drier the story gets kind of. And I mean, if you really want to know the ins and outs, read the Rendlesham Enigma or something, but you're going to forget the names anyway. <laughs> and if I just yeah. blast everyone with like Master Sergeant, this guy, Staff Sergeant, this, it, you're just going to, you're not going to remember anyway. And they're not vital to the actual, yeah. the meat and potatoes of the story. Yeah. There, there were some key players. And I think you hit the key players. Well, um, do you do? Are we ready to play some finalized clips and go into some some just roundabouts, or is there any more on that first night you want to cover? Well, I mean, I just want to say that this case to me is credible because of the notes that Jim Penniston took that night. So his camera footage that he took, the photos didn't come out, you know, whatever. But he did take detailed notes, and some of these notes are. He still has this notebook to this day. 
and these are handwritten notes and I don't know. I just kind of wanted to read some of them to kind of give the impression that he did see something like this is something that he definitely saw. So in his notebook, he, he wrote larger white light, slowing high intensity, white, blue, and red skin of skin of craft fabric, black, smooth glass, like surface, unknown identity, unknown. High electric static on clothes, skin, hair, type of aircraft, unknown. No apparent landing gear, no sound, but appears operational somehow. Aircraft is unknown, cannot identify propulsion, unknown. Size, nine feet long, approximately seven to eight feet high. Skin fabric of craft warm. Very warm to touch, identifying markings on left front side. Approximately three inches, symbol length, and about two feet long. Symbols etched or engraved, language unknown. Um, and, I mean, it's just, the, this is written in just a tiny little police handbook. Liftoff, 245, no sound, no air disturbance, no other identified markings. Takeoff, unknown speed, impossible. Um, crazy. Just absolutely crazy. Um, we got one last clip, clip with Peniston where he kind of wraps up how he feels about it. Uh, and then... I think we want to talk about part two a little bit, guys, if, if you want. I mean, it's just a story. And again, this is one night. And this is one of just how things unfold. And not only that, but one of those, when you heard the intro that we played in the very beginning, when John Redden kind of set up the ambiance, we went into it. It wasn't just them seeing this thing. There were other villagers outside that witnessed things similar. The, the problem was there was really no documentation on their side as credible as it was on the basis. And I think that really has a big part to play. Uh, I think I, I agree with the, the, the human race would probably experience the same type of feelings I had. Uh, but I think one of the things that I, I hadn't mentioned is, uh, is probably denial is one of the, also the feelings you feel. Well, this can't be what I think it could be. I think that's part of what's going on there. And, uh, because, you know, we're rational people. We want to, we want rational answers, especially uh, in that position I was in. I mean, what we have in that base, in those twin bases, largest tactical fighter wing in the United States Air Force. It felt sort of complete. You know, it felt like we're, it was okay. And then when it took off, there was an absence of that feeling. Uh. Yeah, that's kind of crazy how we, there's a really big emotional thing there for him and and i think maybe a lot of that is just the physical contact he had with the with aircraft itself you know there had to been something that happened there i feel yeah and that's the thing i know we're going to get into nick redfern's uh theory which is i mean interesting and he's put a lot of time into it and i guess there's probably things that make sense to it for sure but Nick Redfern's also on record as saying that he doesn't think Jim Penniston or John Burroughs is lying about anything. He's like, no, they're 100% saying what they thought, but I don't know. Maybe it's, I, and I haven't read his book at all, but, and maybe it's just me, but Jim Penniston seems like a pretty straight laced straight shooter guy that didn't really want any of this attention and didn't want this, anyway like he wanted just a good air career in the air force and you know live his life 
Well, I, I feel John Burroughs is kind of similar too, though. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, he was just and and again, Ward. We're going to get into it. It was really not only the theories behind of what people think of really what occurred that night, whether it's what, you know, Jim Pennison's firsthand accounts are or John Burroughs or whatever have you. But there's other things that play everything from, you know, missing files to dates that are wrong to like there. there's a little there's a bunch of stuff that make this it makes the skeptics look even more skeptical into what this looks like, which, mm. you know, is sad in itself. Um, one thing we're going to tease with, and then John, we'll let you wrap it up on your side, but there's one thing on the second night, I believe, correct? It was a halt tapes where they actually had, um, they said, Hey, something happened the night prior. We're going to go out there and record this because we're seeing the same thing again. And this is going to occur. Yeah. So the second night, I believe there's officers having a party and the lights are back. And this is where things get really muddy on what actually happened because people's stories aren't lining up. Um, And Colonel Halt wasn't necessarily even supposed to be out there. Yeah. Um, Right. But he kind of invited himself and we have his tapes to thank for that. But uh, yeah, I don't want to give too much away because that will be in the next episode, but we're going to get into day two and day three or night two and three of, of the Rendlesham forest incident. Yeah, for sure. Um, we're going to play a quick little teaser clip on the halt tapes, which again, it's like 24 minutes of tape that he, you know, again, wasn't supposed to be out there, really wasn't supposed to be recording, but, but there's a lot of, lot of things in the weeds and that's where we're going to lead on to part two. So let's play that real quick and then we'll do wrap up. Two of us are clean, we've got an object about 10 degrees directly south. 10 degrees off the horizon. Then once the north are moving, what's moving away from us? Just moving out fast. This one on the right takes away too. Yeah, we're both heading north. Okay, here, here he comes from the south. He's coming toward us now. Now we're observing what appears to be a beam coming down to the ground. This is unreal. Stand by Crazy. for that mess. Yeah. Crazy. Um, man. I don't know. The fact that Jim Pennison touched the craft. <laughs> that blows just, my mind. I don't know. You, you know, and the thing is, they, you know what's funny? They talk about, oh, yeah, this is as big as Roswell. No, Roswell wasn't this big. I mean, it was this big in the United States. Yeah, it was reported, but it wasn't something that was seen, was felt, was reported on, was witnessed. It, it wasn't anything to that extent. This is on mm. another level altogether, in my personal opinion. But I, you know, that's just well, me. It's definitely on another level. I'm honestly kind of over Roswell. <laughs> yeah. No, as weird as that sounds, death. I'm just like, yeah. ugh, like we're never going to get a straight answer. There's always going to be this or that. So I'm, I'm just, Roswell is Roswell. And I, I think, ufology in general should just move on with their lives. Kind of, I don't know. Maybe that's a bad way to look at it, but 
No, it's Surely fair. There's got to be some more important things we can be looking at. It's fair. And I think in this day and age, too, you know, it, it kind of sometimes this whole UFO research puts a bitter taste in your mouth because of the different people doing it. Um, but, you know, where Rendlesham kind of stands apart is the time frame that it happened, the area it happened, uh, a lot of the other factors that surround it. Uh, just kind of a, yeah, now kind of amazing. John, appreciate well, you putting your work you in there. You have know? fairly credible witnesses also. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. Whereas I'm, with. Uh, with Roswell, you don't really have that. You have uh, Jesse Martell saying what he thought it was and then either changing his story or being replaced by somebody else that said it was something else and mm-hmm. and never really getting to the bottom of it. You know what I mean? Whereas here, in this case, you do have credible witnesses and I think that is kind of important. Yeah. Well, and... I've taken hallucinogenics. I've taken acid. I've taken mushrooms. Uh, I did salvia once, which sucked. But like, I and I mean, I know I'm taking those. But I swear to God, if somebody like if I was uh, if I was dosed with LSD or something similar to LSD, and I came down, I would know that I was just on a, a drug of some sort. Right. You know what I mean? So, like, the the theory that these guys were all on psychoactive drugs and everything, that's psychotropic a, yeah, tropic a, drugs, like, that just doesn't there. that just doesn't check out to me. And I mean, I'm well, open. I'm open to the the hypothesis. I, I mean, like, what do I know? Like, but it just I doesn't mean, seem like. I feel like you'd go, oh, "Holy shit!" That was. Let's let's save that for. Part two. The next, yeah, <laughs> yeah. for what's coming there are, up. But, yeah, there are some things. But there. to rebuttal real quick, uh, if you had never knowingly taken any of those psychotropic drugs Thank you. Uh, coming down from them, would you know that's what it was? Or would you think you were just like, man, my adrenaline was really pumping and that shit was super weird and I'm kind of like fucking beat and fucked up now. <laughs> Yeah, mm-hmm. not not to play the devil's advocate, but you got a point because, you know, it's not one of those things where you physically know you took the drug and now you're waiting for something. If you were drugged and you didn't know you were drugged and you never have been, that's a completely different thing on its yeah. own. And, uh, and again, but, amongst other theories. But That is a really good point, though. So I will say this, though. I really do want, like, Spielberg or, like, J.J. Abrams or somebody to make to a remake movie this. about this shit. <laughs> yeah, oh, it'd be so cool. Hey, dude. Yeah, no, it would be awesome. It would have to be a miniseries of some sort. I don't think they could wrap it up in a two and a half hour time it'll, frame. It'll be on Amazing Stories on Apple TV, so I'll never see it. <laughs> oh, shit, that's right. Apple TV does have Amazing Stories. I love that show in the 80s. Yeah. Oh, well. Teach your own. But that's that's awesome. I mean, I John, thank you for your work on it. Um, you know, there's more to come. And, and again, I think that the second half of this is just uh, we're going to go into plausibilities, theories, what are the people are saying? What are the people are debunking? Some people that came out to say, yep, I saw that. And they got completely disproven that that's fucking not what they saw. Like there's a whole nother basket of apples over here that we're going to kind of open up for you guys. Um, so hopefully you enjoyed it. Um, if you have any recommendations for anything that you want to write into topics, anything to that point, you can write us at strangeuncles at gmail.com. If you have a story or a tale to tell, which we love, and we've got a couple kind of on standby, you can call us at 801-252-69. Call us. 45. And you can let us know. Uh, it covers in three minutes. If it goes over that, call us back. I'll splice them together. Um, you know, we're always, always welcome to hear stories and whatever have you, you can find us on all social platforms and all podcast platforms. Um, 
Josh, John, you got everything else for Patreon, et cetera, et cetera? Uh, Patreon.com slash strangeuncles. Um, give us your money. Uh, <laughs> there's bonus content galore. Um, depending on what tier you decide to join at, uh, that depends on what access you get to said bonus content, but everybody gets a little something, something. Mm-hmm. Um, and check out the YouTube channel. We're trying to uh, grow that. Um, let us know what you think, if you think it's worth the time. Um, and that's about all I have. Also, yeah, uh, rate and subscribe on wherever you get your oh, yeah. podcasts. Yeah, Because it creates visibility and helps us move up in the rankings. Definitely. And, you know, when Josh was talking about uh, Patreon, for example, you know, I will tell you guys that all you listeners out there, there's no time that – I, I personally, and I know you guys are the same way, we don't find a benefit to if we're somewhere and we happen to stumble on something weird that we're going to try to record it or try to do something with it so it can be out there for Patreon listeners. Um, you know, John, you did your hiking trip last weekend. Jo- Josephine and I did one a couple weekends ago. We went to Zion and just so happened to run into this really cool haunted cabin story. I recorded it. It's on video. I'm editing it now, and that will be up on Patreon. So we really love this shit, and we really try no matter what we're doing. You know, if we stumble on something that might be halfway titillating, we throw it your guys' way. So hopefully you enjoy that, and hopefully you appreciate that. But um, that's all I have on my side. John, thanks for the work, man. So. You're welcome. There's more work to come. By all means. So. <laughs> we've we've literally we've literally just scratched the surface on this story. Like this isn't even uh, <laughs> so you can just throw the book up. That's how you get <laughs> yeah, it's insane. We've made it to page seventy five, people. Yeah. I'm glad I ordered the three forty page book and not what you ordered. That's just insane like it's yeah yeah, like literally this this is as far as we've got (laughs) so if if you're watching this on video we've got to page 76 out of like a 700 page book so yeah we're We're definitely not going to be able to get to all of it and i i'll try and not be so long-winded but yeah no but i think we'll do it justice and so we appreciate it hopefully you guys stay safe stay stay healthy uh be nice to one another most importantly wear a fucking mask Jesus. Yeah, try to try to be halfway resemblance of doing something decent. You know, that would help. And a mask starts, definitely. It's not hard. Nope, not at all. So anyway, thanks, guys. Good partying with you. Close the gates. You've been listening to a fourth-hand production.